the live stream this morning. Uh, no particular announcements I can think of to make you aware of, so we are just going to just transition and just worship the Lord this morning. It is Him that we come uh, to worship. And uh, John in his gospel says that we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son, and speaking about actually seeing Jesus and beholding Jesus, hearing his voice, seeing his works. And while we have not seen physically with our own eyes Jesus, our Savior, and his works, we have also seen his glory, and we see his glory in his word. We see his teaching, we see his miracles there, we see who he is, we see his sacrifice for us on the cross. And so let us, re- let us rejoice, let our house, our, our time together, our, our building be filled with love and joy for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let us begin our time together and let us worship him uh, through song this morning. Amen. Church, let's stand and worship this morning. The word of God says, O come, let us sing to the Lord and let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Amen. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with song, songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Amen. Amen. Let's worship. together. Crown him with many crowns. Crown him with many crowns. The Lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns. All music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died
worthy of your name, Father. Let's continue worship. When I survey the
Father, you are worthy of our praise this morning. A love so amazing, so divine, absolutely demands our soul, our lives, our all. Father, we worship you this morning in song and now in your word. Continue, Father, to speak to us. May your word edify our hearts and we be encouraged. May we be rebuked even, Father, and brought to repentance. But may our eyes be focused on you, Father, on Christ, on the redemptive work, Father, that that was made on the cross through your son, Jesus. God, thank you for the salvation that you have given your church, the hope that we can now stand on. May we continue to magnify your name this morning in our gathering, Father. Lord, you're worthy of our praise. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen, church. You may be seated. At this time, we'll be dismissing uh, children to their classrooms. I'm going to read for us Job 5, verses 17 to 20, and then we will, then we will pray. Job 5.17 says, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no evil shall touch you. Amen. Let's go to the Lord and let's pray. Father, when we consider that you are the majesty on high, that you are the, the God Almighty, the creator of all things, that you are the righteous one, for us as those that you have redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ, Lord, we cannot help but worship you for who you are, for what you have done for us. Lord, and there are times when, when we consider the magnitude of who you are and the, the purity of your righteousness, Lord, that sometimes we, we come to realize how far we are from measuring up. We consider, as, as we as we look upon you in the reading of your word, sometimes we cannot help but consider our, our failures, our sins, our weaknesses. But you are, your word tells us that you are the God who binds up, the God who heals. You are the God who blesses. Lord, and we stand here today because we have felt 
the conviction that comes with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is that very gospel that not only convicts, but also heals and binds up and blesses those who, who embrace the gospel, those who cherish the gospel. Lord, what a joy it is to serve, to serve you, to honor you, to worship you this very morning. As we sing of your glories, as we sing of your excellencies, as we lift up our prayers to you. And God, as we make a request known to you, Lord, we, we confess our sins. We confess, Lord, that, that we are not as righteous as we would like to be, that we are not as holy as we desire to be. But we're thankful, Lord, that you have not given unto us what our sins deserved. But you have given to us your Son, who absorbed the just penalty for our sins. So that all who call upon Jesus as Savior receive forgiveness and receive eternal life. Well, there are times when we read your word. There are times when we sit under your word on Sunday mornings. There are times when brothers or sisters share the word with us. Lord, we confess there are times that we don't want to hear it, either because we are prideful, either because we are in love with our sin. Father, would you help us to receive your word with all humility? Your word tells us in Ephesians 4 to, it commands us actually to not let any corrupting talk come out of our mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, so that may give grace to those who hear. Lord, we want to be a people who speak words to build one another up. Lord, but sometimes to build up others, sometimes it requires for us to say words that are hard to hear. And in turn, it requires us on our part to receive words that are difficult to hear. Lord, would you help us to grow in humility, to receive gentle correction and gentle rebuke so that we might be built up so that we might be healed, so that we might be then encouraged and strengthened in our faith. And help us to be faithful unto one another, that we might have the love and the courage to speak truth into each other's lives, even if that truth is difficult to hear. And we're thankful, Lord, that you have given to us the gospel and that through your word you did not shy away from telling us what our sins deserved, but you did so so that we might come to Jesus Christ for our salvation and find our blessing and our rest in him. Father, we pray this morning for our brother Gerald McAmon and God, we pray that you would make him a man of your word and that he would humbly always receive your word and that he might be the man who continues to give the word to others. 
whether they are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ or whether they are unbelievers who need the word. Lord, would you look after James and Jonathan and Joshua and Josiah, Lord, direct their lives. And we pray, Father, that each of them would also know the blessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray this morning also for the Martinos, and we pray, Father, that you would deepen their attachment, their bonds with one another, with their children. Father, we pray that you would strengthen those bonds. Help them, Lord, to strive each day to see their precious boys through the lens of Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray for Julian and Davy. We pray, God, for listening ears. We pray for their obedience, and most importantly of all, Lord, we pray for their salvation. Father, we pray that you would make them like James and John, the apostles of Jesus Christ, the sons of thunder, that you would make Julian and David sons of thunder to the glory of God and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, give their family a growing love for Christ and for others and for making disciples. Father, we pray this morning also for our sister Reshma. She is in, as she is wading in deep waters right now, and in, 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 in seeking others and seeking financial help, as she gets ready to go to the mission field and finding support. Father, would you help her now in these moments, Lord, of, of just discouragement? Would you help her heart? Lord, would you send her way Epaphroditus-like encouragement? The encouragement that Epaphroditus certainly must have been when he visited the Apostle Paul in prison. Lord, we pray for that kind of encouragement, Lord, to come to her way, even this very day, that she may continue to trust and a gracious God who will care for her every need in Christ Jesus. Father, we pray for a great awakening in New England. We pray, Father, that you would ready the soil of many hearts to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray for churches. We pray for ourselves also, God, that we might not be shy in proclaiming the full gospel of Jesus Christ. We know that there are hard things in the gospel hard things to receive, hard things to hear. But the intent is always salvation. So give us courage, give us the boldness, Lord, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, your word tells us to pray for those in high authority. Lord, so we pray, God, this morning for the president. We pray for his administration. Father, we pray for his wisdom, for his counsel, for knowledge, understanding, for his health. Father, whatever his hands are set to do, Lord, that you would not permit him to do anything, Lord, that would not be according to your will. We pray that in all things, Lord, that you might use him as an instrument for your purposes, ultimately. 
And Lord, your word also commands us to pray for those in authority so that we might live peaceful and quiet lives. Lord, I love that the word tells us to pray for such things. And so we pray, God, that you would direct his paths, Lord, and every document that he signs, Lord, so that we might be able to live peaceably and quietly, Lord, especially as Christians who are increasingly becoming objects of hostility in our culture. Father, lastly, we pray for those in our church who are in a, any kind of managerial position, for those who are managing departments, for those who are managing people, managing responsibilities, Lord, would you give them your grace? Would you help them and give them wisdom and insight and understanding, Lord, so that they might perform their tasks well, that they might be faithful stewards of what they have been entrusted to them so that they can then in turn give some kind of investment or profit on those who are over them and that they might receive commendation and might receive greater responsibility, that their work would be glorifying to you and shine as a beacon of light to those around them. Father, we entrust all of these things to you. We entrust our prayers to you. Lord, there are many other things that we can certainly be prayed for, but you know our hearts, you know our desires, and you also know what is best for us. And so we pray, God, that you would do your will. We trust you, Father. And it's in that same spirit, Lord, that we also lift up our voices and pray the prayer that you have taught us to pray in the Scriptures. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If you would, please turn with me to the book of Acts. This morning we are in Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 16, although for this morning we will read verses 13 to 16 of Acts chapter 3. It is these verses specifically that will form the ground of the word this morning. Acts chapter 3, picking it up in verse 13, this is... Peter preaching to the crowds. He says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. This is the word of the Lord. 
Father, we pray before, before you that you would come and look down upon us. More than that, Lord, that your presence might be with us this very morning as we, as we think and give our attention to your divinely inspired word. Lord, help us to receive it as such. Help me, Lord, to declare it and to proclaim it as such. And that by your Spirit, you might help us to internalize your word. And that through your Spirit, you might cause your word to bear fruit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Peter and John, and for some context, Peter and John... I've gone to the temple, the hour of prayer. This would have been at around 3 p.m. in the afternoon, and the temple would have been swelling with many people doing the same thing, many Jews going to the temple to pray to God. And here is this man who needs to be carried, and he's there put at the entrance asking for alms, to beg. A man who has been lame from birth. A man who's never been able to walk in his life. A man that from the very beginning, from being first coming out of the womb, needed to be carried from one place to another to another, always depending on another person. Can you imagine to watch your friends growing up being able to run around and jump and leap and to not be able to do the same? To see the others go and get married, and have families, while he most likely is looked down upon and not able to get married and have his own children, who cannot even get into the temple where most people would gather and there enter to be able to pray to God, spending many years of his life depending on the generosity of others until one day Peter and John make their way to the temple and his life is radically transformed. And there, by faith in Jesus Christ, and I also argue that this man also must have had faith as well, very much like the paralytic who had some measure of faith that resulted in his being forgiven of his sins before he was made to walk. So in the same way, this man had some measure of faith surely would have heard of Jesus Christ. There's no Jew at that time who would have not have heard of Jesus Christ. And in that moment of meeting Peter and John, he is healed. Right, 29, there are 29 muscles in the human foot. And in that moment, it wasn't like he needed physical therapy afterwards. It wasn't like this gradual restoration and healing. It was in the moment all those muscles were restored. This man went from feeling probably badly for himself for most of his life. Now he went rejoicing and leaping and praising God for what he has just received. But this isn't just about an incredible miracle. Peter seizes on the opportunity to then preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and as he's preaching the gospel, he points to Jesus Christ and he identifies Jesus in three different ways. He says three different things concerning this Jesus who healed 
the lame man, the first thing that he says concerning Jesus as he now addresses his attention to the crowds and preaches the gospel, he says that this Jesus is the glorified servant of the God of Israel. And as the servant of the God of Israel, there are several characteristics that make up his identity as the servant of God. First, as a servant of God, Jesus is commissioned by God. John 5.36, Jesus says that the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, that is John the Baptist. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus does not come into the world on his own accord, but he comes commissioned by the Father. He's sent by the Father. And he says, look at the works, look at the signs that I perform. They all testify about me that the Father is the one who has sent me into the world to accomplish his tasks. And as the servant of God, that also requires him to carry out the will of another, or more specifically, to carry out the will of one, not just any other, but one, that is God. This is what you would expect any servant. The servant does not have two masters where he is serving two opposing wills, serving one master over here, one master over there. But no, Jesus has come to carry out the will of the Father. The tasks, the responsibilities, all those things that this carrying out of the will would have entailed, Jesus has come to do these things. It was an exclusive allegiance. Even when others were trying to exert their own will upon Jesus, Jesus would never listen. Let's take, for instance, his brothers who did not believe in Jesus Christ, or that but not believe in Jesus that he is the Messiah. When it was time for the feast, they tried to persuade him, go to the feast. Why would you hide yourself? Let the people know who you are. Show these works of yours. But because it was not his time, he would not listen or bow down to their will. Or take Peter, for example, who loved his master. It would not have Jesus go to the cross, but even then Jesus would not bow down or submit to the will of Peter as much as he loved Peter or even consider the temptations that Jesus endured in the wilderness, temptation after temptation after temptation. When even the devil offered him the kingdoms of the world, these will all be yours if you bow down and worship me. Or in other words, submit to my will. And Jesus would not because he was fixated on carrying out the will of another, and that is namely his father. And as a servant of God, and just like any other servant would be, he seeks to be faithful. He's unrelenting in his commitment. Jesus says that his food is to do the will of him who sent him to accomplish his work. That means that Jesus' meal, his breakfast, his lunch, his dinner was to do the will of God. That was his diet. Matthew 12, 18, it tells us, Behold, my servant, that is Jesus, whom I, that is God, have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will pour 
or puts my spirit upon them, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He's not going to climb with a boisterous voice up on the streets. Continues, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is God speaking about his servant, his servant whom he has chosen. He calls him his beloved. He says that this servant is one that he is well pleased with. And it speaks to the nature of Jesus' service. It says that a bruised reed he will not break. That those who have been bruised but the pains and trials of life, Jesus, as the service unto the Father, knows how to deal gently with those who have been bruised and battered and broken by the trials and sufferings of the, and the temptations of this life. He knows how to care for them. He knows how to restore them, how to build them back up. A smoldering wick he will not quench. Like, like, a, like a candle that the wick is about to be extinguished. And so you try to put your hands around it to protect it from any air, to, to, to will protect it from being extinguished. So Jesus knows how to take his hands, his arms, upon those who are just at the last leg, those who feel that the fire of their hope is about to be extinguished. Jesus knows how to care for them and deal gently with them. It's for this reason that the Puritan Thomas Goodwin had once said that Christ is love covered in flesh. Jesus is the servant of God. As a God's servant, he knows how to deal gently with God's people. And as a servant of the Lord, he seeks to fulfill to the very end what he is tasked with. He's not going to stop one moment before the finish line. He's not going to stop as it begins. He's not going to stop in the middle. No, he's not going to stop until he fully completes the assignment that has been given unto him. It's like an athlete who receives the ball and is determined to get to the goal. Or like a runner who receives the baton and will not stop running, will not be deterred, will not be impeded, will not be distracted until they cross the finish line. So Jesus will not be deterred, whether by friend or foe, from heading to the finish line, which is ultimately the cross. And it is at the cross where Jesus will perform his greatest act of service, hence why we identify him as, hence why Isaiah 53 speaks of the suffering servant. Because this servant goes to the finish line to suffer for the sake of God's people. And so his exclusive allegiance to the Father, his resoluteness, his determination... would take him ultimately to his incredible, most incredible act of service, and that is for the glory of God dying on the cross for the sins of God's people. Jesus, as a glorified servant of God, 
Peter has something else to add to this identification of Jesus. He also adds that Jesus is the holy and righteous one. As the holy and righteous one, there are specific things that are carried or that in, that, that's entailed in this identity as a holy and righteous one. Firstly, the holy and righteous one is the only one who has the words of eternal life. After many of Jesus' followers stopped following him because they could not bear with the hard to receive words of Jesus Christ, Jesus turns to his disciples and asks them in turn, well, are you going to leave as well? And Peter responds in John 6, 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Man, where else are we going to go? No one else has the words of eternal life. Only you have them. That means that no one else is ever going to appear in the world that's going to have the words of eternal life. They can say that they do, right, but they're a liar or a false prophet, for Jesus only has the words of eternal life. That's a holy and righteous one. It also means that Jesus is anointed for God. He's been set apart for God, commissioned by God for a unique assignment, like a special agent might be called upon to fulfill a specific and special and dangerous assignment. So he receives his paperwork. He receives his folder. Here is your mission. But in addition to that, Jesus also receives a large binder. And in the large binder, he turns and what he sees are the faces and the names of all those that he's going to save. Set apart the best of the best. No one else can fulfill this mission. Set apart for God for that specific purpose. It is the reason why Jesus will say, for this purpose I was born. And it is an assignment that has everything to do with you and I. And as the holy and righteous one, he is the only one also who can anoint others. It is through the cross that God sets his people apart. From, aside from the setting apart of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right, we would still belong to the world. We would still be children of the world, but through the cross, through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we've been called out of the world and into the marvelous light of the gospel. We're no longer a part of the world, but we've been set apart from the world because now, according to 1 Peter 2, we are a people for God's own possession. We are no longer possessed by the world, but now we are possessed by God. That's why also 1 Corinthians says that you are not your own, but you have been bought or purchased with a price. And as the holy and righteous one, he is the only one who can bear our iniquities. Isaiah 53, 11, it says, Out of the anguish of his soul, the suffering servant, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, God's servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The righteous for the unrighteous. 
every life of sin and every life that is full of sin can have all their penalties absorbed in the one life of Jesus Christ. Right, someone might ask, well, how is that possible? How is it possible that one life, that one single life, can absorb the penalty for a multitude of lives? And it is because he is the holy and the righteous one. Because there is no one else like him. Because there is more righteousness and holiness in Jesus Christ than there is sin in our lives. So that if you were to put in the balance the holiness and the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the sins of all his people, the holiness and the righteousness of Jesus Christ will always outweigh our sins. Three years. Three years of Jesus' life. If Jesus had come into the world and only devoted three years of life and ministry, going to the cross, that would have been more than worth a lifetime of sin for you and I. Even if Jesus has come into the world for one day and one day only, come into the world, immediately made a beeline to the cross, that one day of the life of Jesus would have been worth more than centuries and millennia of sin. That is why this one life can certainly absorb the penalty all the sins of God's people. Peter has something else to add about Jesus Christ. He also identifies him as the author of life. The author of life, there's a double meaning here. The author of life speaks to the one who gives us mortal life. Every single person on the planet has or owes their existence to the creator of the universe. That's why John 1, 3 says that all things were made in him, in Jesus Christ. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That is everything without exception, including your life and mine. Colossians also says, by him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth. That means that every single human person on the planet bears the mark of the divine creator. Like an artist who might create a wonderful, beautiful canvas, at the end will autograph it because it is his, because he wants people to know that he made it. So in the same way, every time that we take a breath with our lungs, every time that our heart pumps blood through our veins, it's intended to point to a divine creator. The author of life also means that he is also the one who gives people eternal life. And those who have been set apart by God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, they now bear the mark of new life in Christ. Not only that, but they also show their new life in Christ. They cannot help show their new life in Christ. You can see it in their demeanor. You can see it in their actions. You can hear it in their words. You can see it in their home life. You can see it in their work space. They bear the mark of new life. Centuries ago, family crests, this was mostly in Europe, but family crests used to be pretty common. These are things that are handed down from one generation to another. And in a family crest, 
you'd have, it is just, it's, it's a picture, really. It's a mark, it's a symbol. And in the, in the family crest, you'd have a few different things there that represented different things. You might have, firstly, you might have something that points to past achievement, whether it's some kind of uh, something heroic, whether it's some contribution to society. You would have something there symbolized in the family crest. You would also have a reminder of legacy, pointing to the generations that came before you. It also points to the responsibility that the person has in the present to carry on that legacy as well. And in the family crest, you would also have something that represented status. What did this tell you about this person? This person could have been possibly uh, a, or have had a lineage of knights, for example. Or this person might be royalty, is another example. In Christ Jesus, those who have been called out of the world in darkness through the gospel of Jesus Christ now bear a family crest. And in that family crest, there are several things that are represented. First, it's what's represented there is past achievement. Not our achievements, but what's represented there is the achievement of the cross of Jesus Christ. What's also represented in that emblem is a reminder of legacy. A reminder to us of those who have come before, the faithful, and our responsibility to continue to walk in that same faithfulness today, to continue to try as much as we can by the power of the Spirit to transfer that legacy to our own children so that they might also continue in that legacy as well. And you would also have status as well, and through the Spirit of God, now every believer has the status of sonship. The New Testament says that we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. This is freely given to us through Jesus Christ, who is the author of eternal life, the giver of eternal life. So Peter brings to the crowds this attention after having seen this miracle. All eyes are fixed on Peter and John, and Peter is preaching the gospel. He identifies Jesus as the servant of God, as the holy and righteous one, as the one who is the author of life. And now then we get to the crux of the matter. His point is that Jesus is God's anointed this is not just a man who was crucified to a cross. This is God's anointed. And Peter also intends to tell them of their personal guilt. This is God's anointed. And this is what you've done to him. He wants them to know you have personal guilt. He says that you delivered this one who was a servant of the Lord. You delivered over. It's about 58 times in the New Testament that you see this, you see delivered over. And with the exception of about a handful of times, in every other instance, delivered over is always to something negative, something horrible, such as, for example, Jesus being delivered over to the hands of sinners or Jesus warns those who follow him of the dangers of following him, namely that they also could be delivered over to a terrible 
outcome because of the cost of following Jesus and delivered also delivered also or delivered over possibly even by closed closed loved ones. But Jesus or Peter rather is saying, You delivered the servant of God over to be crucified. Not only did you deliver him, but you denied him in the presence of Pilate when Pilate saw nothing wrong in Jesus, nothing worthy of punishment, sought to let Jesus go. Instead, Peter says, you decided to deny him, deny who he is, deny his teachings, deny his works, and turn your face away from him. Not only did you deny him, but Peter also goes on to tell them that you exchanged. You exchanged the holy and righteous one for who? For a criminal. Rather than having the holy and righteous one released freely back into your community, you instead chose to have released back into your community Barabbas, a murderer. Not only did you make this exchange, but you also had a hand in killing the author of life, the one who gave you life, mortal life. Now you handed him over to have his life extinguished. That's the crux of the matter. That is the purpose for which Peter then goes on to preach the gospel. He's not shy, right? This isn't sort of the, uh, the feel-good kind of message. This isn't that bad kind of message that you would want to share and if you're you know, wanting to be well-liked. But Peter is intending to bring conviction into the heart of the crowd. So that's really the purpose of the matter. I mean, the purpose is twofold. The purpose is that they might be saved. We'll get to that next week. But the purpose prior to that grand and ultimate purpose of salvation is conviction. Because there is no salvation apart from conviction. You cannot be saved if you're not first convicted. Because otherwise, if you're not convicted, then what do you need to be saved from? Or saved for? Right, you need to be be made aware of your need for salvation before you can actually receive salvation. And that is why we preach the gospel. Because we need, we want people to be saved. But first we need to tell them why they need to be saved in the first place. The gospel requires some level of conviction. Otherwise, a gospel is like a blunted axe. Right? You can take that thing to town on the tree all day long, but you're not going to get anywhere because the edge, there's no edge to it. It's like the story of David and and Nathan, when David committed sin. Which, by the way, I don't know, I mean, which I guess points to sort of the deceitfulness and the hardness of sin. That a man could take another man's wife and take her to bed and then have her her husband murdered. And it seems like he just go on with the rest of his day. Almost like nothing happened until Nathan the prophet comes and tells him, let me tell you the story of injustice. 
And David gets it. He's like, oh, that man should be tried. That man should be killed. And Nathan says, you are the man. You are the unjust man. And only then did David feel any level of conviction for his sin. Only then did he go to the Lord and pray and lament and confess his sins before God. Sometimes we need that word of conviction so that we might finally turn away from the hardness of our hearts to the precious Savior. When we stand, when we consider God's servant and how faithful he is to the end, we might come to grips with our own faithlessness and realize that we're not nearly as faithful as Christ Jesus is. When we consider the righteousness and the holiness of Jesus Christ, we certainly might be led to consider we do not, how we fail to measure up. How we are nowhere near to the holiness and righteousness of Jesus Christ. When we consider that Jesus Christ is the author of life, we might be led to consider how ungrateful we might be with the life, the mortal life and the eternal life that Jesus has really given unto us. But at the same time, let us not forget the nature of Christ's service, that a bruised reed he will not break. We come to Jesus. When we first come to Jesus, we come to be convicted of our sins. But we don't come only to be convicted of our sins. We come also to be healed and to be blessed and to be saved. So that if the gospel wounds, or if anything in the word wounds, it's always for a reason. A physician may put their patient through much pain, but his ultimate purpose is to restore and strengthen and heal his patient. A surgeon will, will pierce and will cut, but his purpose is never to mutilate the body. A parent with a strong-willed and disobedient child would put, will put their child at some level of discomfort in some way, shape, or form in order to to shape and mold their heart and help them to learn obedience, but the parent's love is never in question. So in the same way, Jesus, through his word, always, there's not always, not every time that we read the word is God intending to wound us. Sometimes it is to comfort us. Sometimes it is to encourage us. But sometimes it is for our correction and our rebuke. And in that sense, sometimes the word does wound. But the Lord is always ready at the same time to administer the healing balm of his mercy and grace. The Lord knows better than we understand that there is remaining sin in our lives and in our hearts. There's some level of selfish and self-centeredness. There are some things that we gravitate towards that we should not be gravitating towards. There are some things that we, that we fantasize about that we need to stop doing. There are some things, there are some ways in which we treat others that we should stop treating them in that way because they're not godly, because they're not, it's not loving. But the main imperative for us 
to consider these things is to not shun or harden or, or steal yourself against the Lord's discipline. There's a the good doctor, as he was, has become identified, the pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones, who had once said that I never allowed the, the patient to write their own prescriptions. And we would rather certainly write our own prescriptions, wouldn't we? But what do we know? But if we tried to administer our own prescriptions to the remaining sin in our lives and in our hearts, we'd probably do more damage than good. That is why we have the prescription of the Word of God. Because the Word, two things. One, it's always objective. And secondly, it always has our best interest in mind if we will humbly receive it. If the Lord puts you through a trial, it's, not, it's only to make you more like Christ. And I'm not saying that every trial in your life is a way of disciplining you because of remaining sin in your life. It's not that it's some kind of consequence for your sins. Sometimes that may be the case. But if there's trial in your life as a way of God disciplining you, because the hardness of your heart, it is intended to make you more like Christ. If his words cut deep, it is only to strengthen your faith. If he corrects you, it's only to soften the hardness of your heart. Sometimes the Lord must wound us in order to cure us from a much deeper rooted problem in our hearts. If you ever tried to pull a weed out of the ground, you know what this is like. Especially for those weeds that you might, for some reason, for just out of neglect, you just permit to grow for a long period of time. Or if you tried to get it from the top, it's not going to do you any good because it's going to keep growing, but you have to try to get to the ground, right to the root, and pull the root out of it in order to, to kill the weed. And some of those weeds, they attach pretty strongly. They attach to the ground, and there's other things growing around in your garden. Sometimes they'll even attach to the roots of other things as well. But sometimes this is how hard it is, especially when there is an attachment to sin in our lives. The Lord has to come deep into the root of our hearts and take whatever it is, whatever the sin it is that we're attached to, and take it and try to rip that thing out. And at first, certainly it hurts. The more attached you are to the sin, the more it's going to hurt. But a bruised reed, he will not break. The Lord knows how to deal gently with his people. The Lord knows how to bind. The Lord knows how to restore. The Lord knows how to heal. The Lord knows how to mend. And that's what he always intends to conclude with. And so we, we deprive ourselves of God's blessing. We deprive ourselves of becoming more like Jesus Christ. Right? When we harden ourselves to correction, to gentle rebuke. So let us not harden our hearts, whether it's through a faithful friend who's coming to you and lovingly and gently looking to speak into your life. And by the way, praise God for fellowship. Praise God for 
Christian community because we need people in our lives to speak into our lives in that way. Which then goes begs the question, like, do you have those kind of relationships in your life? Do you have that kind of fellowship? Are you that transparent with one another? But when a brother or sister comes, you might say, hey, I see this. Hey, I think you need to turn away from this. Do you have the humility to receive it and even be thankful for it? And in turn, would you have the courage to share a gentle correction or a loving rebuke able to help a brother or sister in that way to become more like Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord is given to us to make us more like Jesus Christ. And sometimes that's a painful process. But it's ultimately for our good. It's ultimately for the glory of God. And so let us not harden our hearts to the word of the Lord. Even if sometimes the word comes with a sharp tip, it is intended ultimately to heal you and to help you. Let us pray. Father, we are we're thankful for thankful for the gospel. Lord, we are here today. We come and we worship, we come and we pray, we come and we listen to your word, because at one time in our lives, our hearts were stabbed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in your grace, you did not leave us as we were, but you administered the wonderful prescription of your mercy and grace so that we might be blessed, that we might be healed, so that we might be forgiven, so that we might receive eternal life. So we're thankful, Lord, for giving these things unto us. And Lord, help us, help us personally, individually, to receive your word. There are some things in your word that are difficult for us to receive, not because of theological concerns, but because of their imperative, because of the commandments. They're hard for us to receive because we, at some time, we sometimes come to realize in reading your word that we are, fa- are failing to be more like Christ in a particular area. And in our stubbornness, God, there are, we just, sometimes we just don't want to change. So we pray, Father, you would help us by your Spirit to receive your word with all humility, everything about your word, even those commands that are difficult for us to swallow. Help us, Lord, to not turn away from your word when your word intends to point its edge towards our heart. Even as we do so, Lord, we turn our hearts to your word, help us also to remember that it is for our good, that it is for our joy in the Lord, 
that we can receive these rebukes and these correction, this correction. Because in these things, in your discipline, you are also intending to show us your mercy and your love and your grace. You are love covered in flesh. So that, Lord, when we go through trial, when we experience discipline, when we receive correction or rebuke, whether it's through a faithful friend or through your word, help us to remember that you do not cease to be a God who is love, who deals gently with his people, and that a bruised reed you will not break. We thank you for being such a merciful and gracious and loving Savior towards us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen, church. Let's stand and sing one more song together. Let's worship one more time Um, in response to today's word. Amen.
God. Yes, Lord. Holy, holy, holy is Christ our Lord. The glorified servant of God, as we heard today. Father, I pray that we may consider the holiness and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for for your overpowering holiness that covers all sin. Thank you for making us co-heirs with Christ. Lord, we only exist because of your saving grace. May we embrace humility, Lord, as you you expose our sin and conform us, Lord, to your Son. Remind Remind us of your word. Father, remind us of your word, God, and may we, may we let your word lead us to your mercy, to your love and grace. For you are worthy of our praise as we magnify your name. And in all things, Father, we worship you, we praise you, and it is Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The Word of God says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Amen. Church, God bless you. You're dismissed. Holy Spirit.